Preface and Chapter One of Chemical Phenomena in Life by Frederick Chopek. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chemical Phenomena in Life by Frederick Chopek. Preface. It has given me great pleasure to accept the suggestion of the editor of Harper's Library of Living Thought that I should treat in a volume of this series some phases in the life processes of plants. There is scarcely any other question in the biology of plants of greater interest than of the general chemistry of the cell, namely, of the living protoplasm, which has been so successfully worked at by the biochemists of our time. Not only very important results, but also most suggestive hypotheses, render this chapter of plant physiology more attractive than any other. The molecular structure of living protoplasm, as well as organic synthesis in cells and the hitherto inexplicable phenomena of endosmosis in the cell, have been rapidly placed in the foreground of modern scientific problems, and now range among the great questions of biology to solve, which is a well-grounded hope. So I could not resist the temptation to give a short review of this territory of biology, which is so full of suggestions and attractions. I was, however, not unconscious of the difficulties met with in laying all the questions mentioned above before a wider circle of readers who have not devoted themselves especially to physiological work in biology. A fair knowledge of physics and chemistry, both organic and physical, is required besides the great number of biological facts which must be remembered when we try to obtain a satisfactory survey of the general physiology of the plant. It is therefore rather difficult to present the subject of our book in a condensed but clear and rather popular form, and I may express my doubts as to whether it can be done at the present day as perfectly as has been my wish. So I must beg my readers to be indulgent if my intentions have not been carried out as I would have desired. At least no one will finish the book without the feeling of satisfaction that modern science is going to touch on problems so lofty that before our days their solution could never have been dreamed of. F.C. University of Prague, June 1911 Chapter 1. Biology and Chemistry The establishing of the close connection of the biological and the chemical methods of investigation, so familiar in our days to all who are interested in science, was by no means an easy achievement. On the contrary, this was one of the most important and most difficult steps taken in the glorious era of the great French encyclopedists and philosophers. Chemistry aims at showing the diversity of matter. It tries to separate and to select, to outline the general laws of proportion in quantity and weight in matter, and it does not appeal directly to our senses. It is only experiments that step by step unveil the clouded path of the investigator and lead him up to the heights from whence he has a clear and far-reaching view over the silent fields of nature. Chemical and physical experiments are said to show the laws of nature, but what do we call laws in chemistry and physics? If the conditions of a certain kind of experiment are kept exactly the same, the experiment must invariably lead to the same result. Thus the same result is shown, however often a physical or chemical phenomenon of a certain kind is repeated in nature itself or by the hand of the experimenting scientist. Single results, as they are produced by arbitrary human action, vary. In a great number of them we may already distinguish a considerable number of average values. Suppose this action is repeated infinitely often. Mathematics teach us 
that we may consider the average result as the true and final value, and we may believe this is an equivalent of a law of nature. We see, therefore, that law, in chemistry and physics, is the expression for the probability of the result when a process repeats itself infinitely often. Thus a phenomenon in nature, such as the free falling of bodies or the chemical reaction between sodium chloride and nitrate of silver, may with the greatest certainty be expected to take, in every case, the same course which we have observed even upon only one occasion. Chance and probability are there excluded, and the full certainty of a law of nature is given. Chemistry, in consequence, may apply the means of mathematical calculation to the course, and the final results of chemical change in matter. It belongs, as we say, to the exact sciences. Biology presents in every line a striking contrast to chemistry. It does not need experiments to such an extent as chemistry does. Chemical objects lie unchanged before us, their qualities unaltered, unless we disturb them by experiment. Animated nature works upon our senses in the most striking manner. In animals and plants, gay and bright colors delight our eyes. How much, too, do we not feel attracted by the different forms of movement in living beings? In the childhood of the civilization of mankind, as well as in that of the individual, life and motion, without any visible external agency, are nearly identical conceptions. The variability of phenomena in animated nature, which are accessible to mere observation without experiments, is so great, so infinitely great, that the method of experiment in biology seemed to be entirely unnecessary to all great naturalists up to the eighteenth century. Much more attention was given to the comparison of the different phenomena of life. This method is what we in our days call comparative biology. This branch of biology is particularly occupied with the study of the form and the structure of organisms, that is, morphology and its annexes, embryology, anatomy, and histology. The more we feel the importance and preponderance of morphology and of comparative investigation in biology, the more we must incline to the highest admiration for the genius who first applied chemical and physical methods to biology. Stephen Hale's Statical Essays, 1727, are the memorial of the entrance of physiology into the ranks of the exact sciences. These essays contain the first application of physical laws to biological problems. The pressure of blood in the arteries and the pressure of sap in the vessels of plants were henceforth facts expressed in exact mathematical values. In studying Hale's statical essays, we may most strikingly feel the splendid progress in biology which lies in the application to the ever-changing living organism of methods hitherto only applied to inanimate matter. Experimental biology entirely abstracts from the qualities which, to the naive eye of the observer, are characteristics of life. It enters the territory of its investigation from the highest philosophical point of view, that of the probable connection of living and non-living matter. Thus was built the bridge between exact science and biology. At present we may consider experimental biology and exact science, as well as physics and chemistry. All employ the same methods, and their end is the same, namely, to lead by means of mathematical conclusions to general results which enable us to explain a greater complex of facts starting from a limited number of experimental results. I would prefer to speak of experimental biology rather than of physiology, as is usually done. The very experiment is what is characteristic of the physiologist's method, 
in the same way as comparison is the chief characteristic of morphology or comparative biology. We shall not be surprised to first find physical methods in predominance upon the field of experimental biology. This was in the age of Newton. Some decades later, in the work of Lavoisier in France, of Cavendish, Priestley, and Ingenhaus in England, and of Scheele in Sweden, brought the dawn of scientific chemistry. It was not a mere chance that the discovery of oxygen was closely connected with the important discovery of the fact that living green plants produce in bright sunlight a considerable amount of the newly discovered gaseous element. We henceforth see chemistry and physiology growing as sister sciences, and no era of plant physiology was richer in important discoveries than that of the foundation of modern chemistry inaugurated by the great Lavoisier. At the same time that chemistry was born, biochemistry, or the knowledge of chemical phenomena in life, came into being. Every extraordinary advance in science was accompanied by a revival of materialistic philosophy. The age of Newton, Lavoisier, D'Alembert, and Maupertuis was the mother of La Maitrie's work, L'Homme Machine. A century and a half before our days, imaginative minds even thought of a chemical synthesis of living cells. And when Goethe's poetical genius created Wagner, Faust, Famulus, mysteriously mixing hundreds of substances in his retort upon the chemical hearth, den auf Mischung kommt es an, it was the reflection upon the great poet of myriads of scientific phantasms of that time, as to whether it were not within the reach of possibility to compound life itself from the elements which chemistry had shown to be the pillars of the universe, and which were contained in every animate and inanimate part of the visible world. Again, further, the renaissance of materialism in the last century was the consequence of the marvellous progress of exact science, which even showed us the elementary structure of planets and fixed stars, and taught us to construct in the laboratory the vital compounds of animals and plants, such as sugar, fat, and protein bodies, from their very elements. Here I need not give an extensive sketch of the natural philosophy of our time in its relation to biology, and especially to physiology. Only a few remarks on the importance of experimental physical and chemical methods in biology may be added. The enormous advance of our chemical and physical knowledge of the life process may easily lead to two far-reaching opinions on the unique significance of these methods. Can life be explained by physics and chemistry? Are our methods in biophysics and biochemistry sufficient to disclose the secrets of living cells and to unveil the arcanum of nature? Undoubtedly, nearly all the exact physiological knowledge that we possess is based on physical and chemical methods. Every year we are confronted with new and surprising facts in the physics and chemistry of animate nature entirely parallel to the facts in the physics and chemistry of inanimate nature. But my conviction is that, nevertheless, physiology cannot be really identical with the chemistry and physics of living organisms. If we consider the explanation of the fundamental problems of life to be the aim of physiology, physics and chemistry will presumably not be able to fulfill this great task for themselves alone. It must, however, be conceded that it becomes more and more improbable that life develops forces which are unknown in inanimate nature. Life force was said to produce the host of peculiar substances which in nature occur only in living organisms and are never produced by non-living bodies. These substances were called organic substances. The part of chemistry which deals with organic compounds 
is even nowadays known as organic chemistry. The great chemists of France were the first to show that organic compounds are for the greater part compounds of carbon. The abundance of carbon compounds in the animal and plant world, the scarcity of such compounds in non-living matter, form a striking contrast. We are, then, not surprised to see that at the beginning of the last century the view was generally adopted that carbon compounds can only be formed by synthesis in the living cell. To be complete, it must be mentioned that still in the 18th century, even the mineral salts in plants were said to be formed in the plant cell by the life process. Saussure, in 1804, was the first biologist who proved unquestionably that all mineral salts are taken up into the plant from their watery solution in the soil, and that none are formed in the plant itself. In 1828, the question of carbon compounds in living organisms was solved by the discovery of the German chemist Wohler that urea can be artificially prepared in the laboratory from ammonium cyanate. The deep impression produced upon the scientific world by this important synthesis may be gathered from the opinion expressed by Dumas in 1836. The eminent chemist stated that no sharp line of distinction could be drawn between inorganic and organic chemistry in plants and animals, must rather dwell a peculiar power of synthesis which it was henceforth the task of organic chemistry to imitate. The glorious range of organic syntheses during the last century is still fresh in our recollection. Nearly all the important animal and vegetable substances are at present accessible to artificial synthesis from their very elements. Even protein matter seems to have lost its mysteries since we learned from Emil Fischer's work that amino acids can be combined in the same way as they occur in protein. Compounds of amino acids can be obtained which show all the main reactions of protein substances. Emil Fischer, of Berlin, was the same chemist who in 1886 discovered how to prepare grape sugar from glycerin. A considerable number of plant alkaloids have also been artificially prepared in the course of the last five decades. The most important coloring matters of plants, for instance, alizarin and indogotin are no longer extracted from plants for technical purposes but are accessible from the products of coal tar we see then that animal and plant substances are by no means peculiar to the realm of organic nature they are compounded within the living cell and without it by the same chemical laws our task in experimental biology can only be this to explore the material in the living cell which carries out the chemical changes in substances and to control the reactions which take place in life. The following chapters try to show what success has been attained in the endeavors of science in the bordering territories of chemistry and biology. End of chapter 1